Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it may take a little digging, but it will always make sense because you are the one who wrote it. Lord, I pray that your, your spirit would open our eyes so that we may understand what you were saying to us. But Lord, I pray more than that, that we wouldn't just understand what we're reading, but that you would bury the seeds of truth deep within our souls and that these words would grow and bear fruit in our lives. That is the power of your word. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story that's been told a few different times, one of which I'm sure you've heard before. It goes like this. One day at a county fair, a doctor, a lawyer, and a minister, and a boy won a free airplane ride around the area. They all boarded the airplane with anticipation, and the ride went smoothly at first. Suddenly, however, the plane started to give signs that there was trouble, and it was starting to go down. The pilot yelled to the four passengers that the plane was doomed, grabbed a parachute, yelled to the others to do the same, and jumped out. Unfortunately, there were only three parachutes left on the plane. Four people left, three parachutes. The doctor grabbed a parachute, declared, I'm a very important person. I save lives on a daily basis. The world needs me, and jumped out with one of the parachutes. There are two parachutes left now. The lawyer then declared, I'm the smartest person on this plane. That can't be lost. I need a parachute too. And he jumped out. The minister and the boy were the only ones left. The old minister turned to the boy and said, Son, there's only one parachute left. I've lived a full, long, and good life. Take the parachute and save yourself. That's okay, preacher, the boy responded. The smartest person on the plane just jumped off with my backpack. <laughs> the world declares itself to be very wise. They have philosophers and naturalists and humanists and politicians and those who think they're politicians and all sorts of people who claim to know the way the world works. The foundational beliefs of biblical Christianity are foolish to them. They don't make any sense. They can't be proven, so they must not be true. They're too similar to other faith systems, so every other religion must be the same deep down. On the other hand, as we'll see in one of the most poignant verses in the entire Bible, which turns everything we see and experience in this lifetime on its head, God purposely designed the most important event in world history to look like the most foolish thing anybody could ever believe. And he purposely designed it that way. But what does that do? That radically changes everything. It completely goes counter to every message we hear from the world. One, even a believer in Jesus might question why on earth would God use the message of a Jewish guy who was executed on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago to be shared from one human to another to be his only way of calling humans to faith in him. That does not make any sense. As we'll see in our passage this morning, that's the entire point. Using something that doesn't make any earthly sense to make the most sense in the entire world. So the first point that we come to in our, in our 
one verse today is the review. I know it's been a little while since we've been in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the one that we have recorded for us as 1 Corinthians. So I just want to do a, a little bit of review, which will help us to see how all that we read this morning clearly fits together. Here's our map again of, of the ancient uh, Mediterranean area. We have Athens down here, Athens, Greece. You've heard of that one. We spent some time in Thessalonica over here for a while. Here's Philippi, to which the letter of the Philippians was written. And all the way down here, we have Corinth. And that's where the church uh, that was that Paul wrote this letter to. If you remember, the history of the city of Corinth can be split up into two time periods in history. Old Corinth and New Corinth. Old Corinth was a hotbed of human lust accumulation of wealth, and an unbridled pursuit of worldly pleasure. One ancient Greek writer had coined the phrase Corinthiasomai in obvious connection to Corinth to outright mean the act of sexual immorality. That's what the word, the town name, was synonymous with. Another ancient Greek writer, while perhaps exaggerating, claimed that the temple of Aphrodite, located in Old Corinth, boasted 1,000 temple prostitutes. And even when the ancient writer Plato, Plato referred to a prostitute in his famous work, The Republic, he referred to her as a Corinthian girl. That's how he referred to her. What a reputation to have in the ancient world, huh? However, in 146 BC, the inhabitants of Old Corinth rebelled against its Roman overlords, and in response, Rome completely annihilated the city, either killing or selling into slavery every single one of its inhabitants. Corinth would remain desolate and uninhabited for a hundred years, until Julius Caesar reestablished it as a colony for retired Roman army veterans in 46 BC. In 27 BC, Corinth, or now New Corinth, was established as the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia. You see here, this is the Roman province of Achaia, and Corinth, now New Corinth, or just regular Corinth, is now the political capital of this Roman province of Achaia. Now, New Corinth was certainly not Old Corinth in terms of reputation, but as we well know with humans, old habits die hard, don't they? This is especially true since Corinth was not only a political capital of a region with all sorts of dignitaries and powerful people passing through, but it was also a bustling seaport as we see. It's right on the coast. It was a bustling seaport with all the pleasures of the ancient world pouring in and being bought and traded around. Corinth was still a center for the pursuit of worldly pleasure. And even though Paul had planted a church there, that worldview crept into the church before long. This shortly led to a mindset of self-centered arrogance. In fact, as one biblical scholar put it, if the church in Corinth could be known by any reputation, as we see from Paul's letters, it was self-centered arrogance. Skim over the first part of chapter 1 with me, as we've already covered this part. Picking up in verse 4 and moving through verse 9, 
The only reason Paul could thank God concerning the Corinthian church was for the grace of God that he had even saved any of them through Jesus Christ and was preserving them with, with his Holy Spirit. If we think about the reputation of even the church in Corinth, there was nothing else Paul could be thankful for except the grace of God which made them the church. The grace of God which saved them through Jesus Christ. It had nothing to do with the Corinthian believers, nor how good they thought they were, nor how much they sought certain spiritual gifts, which we'll pick up, uh, back up on later in this letter, nor any perceived faithfulness they had towards God. In fact, as Paul clearly points out in verse 9, it has nothing to do with any of that. And everything to do with God's faithfulness towards them, and that He called them to faith in Jesus realizing that foundational truth was the first step in the reunification of the Corinthian church. In verses 10 through 17, Paul strongly rebukes them for actively dividing themselves up into different camps which claim different spiritual leaders in the early church is better than others and letting that cloud their judgment and drive a wedge in their unity. Paul ends that section by declaring, I'm glad I only baptized a few of you so that not many of you can legitimately claim me as your leader. Paul says in verse 17, you don't even have a right to hold me in superiority over anyone else because my message that I brought to you wasn't even done well. Paul admitted to them right there that he didn't come to them in cleverness of speech. He admitted to them that he wasn't some great orator or preacher or TED Talks guy or have his own YouTube channel or Twitter handle with a billion followers. What did he have? What did change the hearts of the Corinthians if it didn't have anything to do with how well he spoke? It had everything to do with the power of God infused with the plain and unabashed message of the gospel of salvation found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was it. It was the power of God infused with that message. Paul admitted, I wasn't even that great of a speaker. It didn't even have anything to do with the way I presented it. It had everything to do with the power of God infused to the message that I brought to you. Not only was that it, the plain, unabashed gospel, but that was the way that God had designed it. He designed the very act of salvation, the execution of His own Son at the hands of a thoroughly pagan and disgusting empire by way of the most humiliating, emasculating, and torturous form of execution available at that point, and for any point in history for that matter. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. So we did a little bit of review of Corinth and the situation going in Corinth and what led, leads us up to this verse here. And secondly, we're going to talk about the rejection. Read along with me verse 18. If you brought your Bible with you today, turn to 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, that's all right. Look in the table of contents. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's also fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. I want everybody to turn here so we can see this all together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. We read it together already. And we read, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God of God. It's no wonder why then the cross was foolishness to those who God hadn't called to faith in him. 
It makes no earthly sense. Dying on a cross, especially the way Jesus was put to death on one, was humiliating. It was meant to beat every ounce of pride left out, uh, left out of you. It was nothing special, nor was it honorable in any way. Jesus was crucified in between who? Two common thieves. Those are the types of people who were crucified. Jesus was not killed in battle. He wasn't poisoned like Socrates. He wasn't even executed by sword or killed quickly by beheading. First off, Jesus was tortured and mocked. He had his back ripped apart by what was called a cat of nine tails, which was a whip with nine ends on it, and each end of it had a shard of glass or stone tied to it. It was designed to, when it came in contact with flesh, catch and dig in, and then when the person using it whipped back with it, tear out chunks of flesh with it. That's what it was designed to do. In addition, Jesus was beaten up so badly by the fists and nightsticks of the Roman guard, so bloodied and so swollen that it was difficult to recognize him. He had his beard ripped out of his face, a crown of thorns beaten onto his head, a robe thrown around him, and it was mocked by the Romans who hit him in the face and said, if you're really the Messiah, tell us which one of us hit you. After all of that horrific pain, torture, and loss of blood, think about this medically. Jesus was then forced to carry his own roughly hewn and splintery cross to the crucifixion site named Golgotha. He, he physically couldn't do it, though. He was too weak. He had lost too much blood. He collapsed partway through, and somebody else had to carry it the rest of the way. He didn't even have the honor of being able to bear his cross all the way to the crucifixion site. Once at Golgotha, Roman soldiers pounded railroad-sized spikes into his wrists and feet, raised up the cross, and let it drop with a teeth-shattering and jarring thud into the ground. Jesus had to remain there for hours, nailed under a mocking sign that sarcastically declared that he was the king of the Jews and enduring all of the jokes, mortification, and degradation by the shameless onlookers below. Death by crucifixion was accomplished through suffocation. That is, when you were no longer strong enough to hold yourself up, you collapsed and your lungs also collapsed. So whenever Jesus wanted to take a breath, he had to heave himself up by those very same nailed wrists and feet, digging the splinters and rough edges of the cross behind him into his torn apart back just to raise himself up to take a breath. All of this happened with the crushing knowledge that he didn't even have God the Father watching over him anymore due to the world's sin that he took upon himself. Finally, when he was ready to die, he committed his spirit into the Father's hands and collapsed. To add insult to injury, his body was run through with a spear to make sure he was dead. I went through all that horrific description to come to this point. That is not the way a world or religious leader goes out. There's no honor in that. There's no importance in that. It's no wonder then why it's considered by those who haven't had their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit 
why they think that's completely ridiculous. That is not the way a, a world or religious leader is supposed to go out. Take even today. How many times do we see another special being advertised on TV for another take on the political and historical events surrounding Jesus' execution, but no attention given to his resurrection? Either that, or the special's main purpose is to point out the absurdity of any claims to Jesus' resurrection. That's the entire point of the special. Every time around Easter, you can count on it. There's going to be another special advertised that does that. Why? Because in this world's eyes, it's one thing to believe in the crucifixion of a political and religious threat, such as a man named Jesus. It's quite another to believe that he actually rose from the dead. And it's even quite another to believe that those two events taken together are the main focal point and turning point of the entire physical and spiritual world, both collectively and as individuals. If you think about it, if the crucifixion and resurrection did not happen, then there would be no reason to believe that we're sinners in need of a Savior, no need to have faith in anything, no need to need salvation and justification to seal our eternal destiny, and certainly no need to fear anything found in the biblical books of Daniel and Revelation. Likewise, there would be no purpose for humanity except to seek after worldly pleasure, and there would be no redemption of anything traumatic and painful in this life. The suffering and death that Jesus went through on the cross proves that redemption can still come out of traumatic, horrific, and unspeakable evil that happens to any one of us in this world. All of this and so much more is why the cross, while foolish to those who haven't been called to faith in Jesus, is the literal power of God to those of us who have been and have been called to adoption in God's family. And this is why. This is what brings us to our third point. We have the review, the rejection. Lastly, we have the redemption. I've already referenced it a few minutes ago, but the cross is the power of God in the world as a whole. It is what gives this world and humanity, for that matter, any meaning whatsoever. And here's what I mean. If the death and resurrection of Jesus did not occur, there would be no purpose for humankind as a whole. God created man and woman... One by breathing the breath of life into him, and the other one made out of the rib of the man. God created them in the image of God, which meant a few things. God created them with the capacity to understand him and have a relationship with him as much as he revealed himself to them. He also created them to experience and reflect, albeit in a limited capacity, the characteristics of God, such as love, faithfulness, Humility, generosity, love, patience, goodness, and peace. Thirdly, God created humanity in his image to be his representatives in this world. Not only were they to represent God to each other, but they were to represent God to the other creatures he had previously made and to the earth itself. All the way back in the first book of the Bible, God appointed humanity to this position. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and do what to the earth? Subdue it. You're going to rule over it. 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God appointed humanity to not only rule over every other creature that he had already made, but also over the earth itself. However, when humanity committed the first sin and disobeyed God for the first time, not only is humanity cursed, but the whole world is cursed right along with them. We read in Romans chapter 8, For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation, the whole world, was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. See, the whole world was cursed by the sin of those who were commissioned to be in charge of it as God's representatives. Do you get that? Whose fault really is it? It's humanity's. It's actually our fault. When we think, why is this world so messed up? Why is this world so evil? Why do all these horrible things happen in this world? It's not God's fault. Whose fault is it? It's our fault. It's humanity's fault. That tells us that while we can do what we can to conserve this earth, we as humans are not the answer to its salvation. No politician is the answer. No movement is the answer. No policy is the answer. No country is the answer. Only God is the answer. And it's only through the cross that there's any hope of the whole world being redeemed. If there was no cross, as Paul tells us in Romans, there is no redemption of the world. It all falls apart. There's nothing there. Not only that, but it's only because of the cross that this whole cursed world with all of its murder, rape, slavery, exploitation, horror, trauma, unspeakable pain, loss, famine, hunger, and abandonment. Because of the cross, all of this whole cursed world, if there was no cross, there would be absolutely no redemption from all the evils that take place in this world, snowballed from the original sin. There would only be more curses, more evil, and more sin to look forward to. The cross is the only thing that made a break there. Paul notes elsewhere that the Old Testament Jewish law wasn't even enough to break the curse over the whole world. In fact, what the law did was point out to us what sin was, which only exacerbated the curse. Jesus' death and resurrection was the event in world and human history that broke that. The cross is the event that brought any real hope and any real redemption to this world rocked by its own evil. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and his defeat of death, the world has a glimpse at a world where death does not exist. Because of what Jesus did, he took his rightful place at the right hand of God, and one day the world will see payback for its evil. It will see righteous judgment. It will see its prince, the enemy of our souls, 
thrown into the lake of fire. And one day, this world will see its redemption. A newly created heaven and a newly created earth. But it is only through the cross that humanity as a whole is redeemed back to their original positions as representatives of God. If it weren't for the cross, humanity itself would be forever cursed. For death came through its representative. If it weren't for the cross, the fulfillment of humanity's representation, Jesus would not be able to offer life in every meaning of the word to humanity as a whole. It's because of the cross alone that Jesus can redeem humans from their curse of sin and start transforming them back into the representatives of God through the Holy Spirit. That's the power of God found in the cross for the entire world and for humanity. The entire world will see freedom from its curse and see the full redemption of the cross. But what does the power of God in the cross have to do with us as individuals? Well, it offers to us a completely new worldview and a completely new way of looking at the world. It not only offers us a completely new hope for our eternity, but it offers us a completely new way of experience this life. According to this world, there is no purpose outside of decreasing the amount of pain you can possibly have, while simultaneously increasing how much happiness you can possibly have. That's the purpose for our lives according to this world. Talking to anyone on the street or visiting any college campus, and you'd think this was the culturally evolved way of thinking. But this is nowhere near anything new. In the ancient Sumerian writing, the Epic of Gilgamesh, a deity who was supposed to be wise gave this advice. Fill your belly. Day and night make merry. Let days be full of joy. Dance and make music day and night. These things alone are the concern of men. The great king Solomon, who had access to every single worldly pleasure under the sun, as we've been learning about in Sunday school, concluded this about the pursuit of this purpose. Listen to this. This guy was literally the richest man to have existed recorded in the Bible. The richest person today... You know, talk Bill Gates or, 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 or an athlete or something like that. This doesn't come anywhere close to the wealth this guy had. This was astronomical. This was, n nobody could understand how wealthy this guy was. And this is what he had to say at the end of his life. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine, as many people in this world do. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I collected great sums of silver and gold. Like I said, we wouldn't even be able to 
understand how wealthy this guy was. The treasure of many kings and provinces. What did he do with it? I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. What was a concubine? It was a woman that you could have as your concubine. You technically marry, but you didn't have any legal uh, uh, liability to her or any children that she bore to you. In other words, you could have as many as you wanted to according to this world. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. That's how he was known. The greatest man who had ever lived in Jerusalem. And my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. Sounds nice, huh? I denied myself no pleasure. Again, sounds nice, huh? I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. This guy had the world at his fingertips and he had the money to have anything he wanted in that world. And this was still his conclusion that he came to at the end of his life. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Man, if everyone who spent their lives chasing after fame or stepping on and over co-workers to get promotions or everyone who just jumped from one sexual relationship to the next or everyone who tried to find purpose in hard work or everyone who just worked for more and more money to spend on themselves could just read the conclusion from a guy who had already been there and done that. God's plan of salvation and its redemption of purpose for us as individual humans could only be accomplished through what Jesus did on the cross. The door it opened for the Holy Spirit to indwell, and, uh, indwell us and begin to transform us reveals to us what our true purpose as individual humans is. It reestablishes for us that we were made in the image of God to be representatives of him, to bring glory to him in reflecting who he is to this world and we will be fully reunited with him one day. According to this world, pain is something to be avoided. If we are having one bad day after another, we wonder, why are you doing this to me, God? But the tremendous pain suffered by Jesus on the cross reveals that God himself knows true human pain and the event of the cross redeems even the most painful experiences. Pain is crucial for redemption. That's what we have to get through sometimes our thick skulls. Pain is crucial for redemption. You cannot have redemption without pain. Our salvific redemption could only happen through Jesus' excruciating pain. Our spiritual transformation is only accomplished through pain. James tells us in the New Testament that pain and trials are what God uses to grow us. 
If we didn't have pain, we would not grow. Without pain, our faith would not be stretched. Without pain, our sanctification would be woefully incomplete. That's what makes pain in this world beautiful. Because our pain in this world is redeemed for our transformation and growth. So, if you think about it, pain is not to be avoided, but rather embraced. Why? Because we know that God is growing our faith. That's why. Lastly, according to this world, death is something to be feared. No one really knows for sure what happens to you when you die. Do you cease to exist? Will people eventually forget you? Do you get reborn as something else? Do you get reborn as something and then something and then something until someday you just get sucked into this ethereal body and get melded into the universe and cease to exist as an individual? I can see why fear would be attached to all these different ways of looking at death because there's an uncertainty to all of them. You, have, you really have no clue with any of these other views of death. But because of the cross, there is no fear. There is no fear of the unknown. There is no fear of what will happen to you when you die. And there is no fear of what happens to our loved ones when they die. And it's only because of the cross. Now, how and why is this true and possible? Well, Paul answers this question exactly later on in this letter. He says, but in fact, I love that, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, our representative, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, the full redemption uh, as representative of God. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, the race of humankind, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Remember, we've talked a lot about this, how God is a God of order. There is a go- an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. In fact, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Elsewhere, Paul notes that when we are separated from our physical body through death, our soul finds home with Jesus in heaven. Then when he comes back for his children by way of the rapture, which we've spent a good deal on in the past, our souls will be reunited with our bodies and everything will be perfected. So again, because of the cross, we have confidence in what will even happen to us when we die. We know that it will be in fact. The cross was the turning point for the world and for us as humans. The world can't possibly come to grips with that. It makes absolutely no sense to them. But to us, people who have placed our hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that accomplished for us both in this world and in the next, it truly is the greatest display of God's power we could ever hope to see. And for that reason, even... 
we have all the gratitude in existence to give God praise and worship as we seek to live our lives as redeemed representatives, as children of Almighty God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of God that is found in the message of the cross. We thank you that it is the turning point, not only in world history, but in our human history. Lord, we thank you for the completely new worldview it offers to us. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not placed their full hope and trust and confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus, not only to save them from their sins, but to give them that new life, that new outlook, that new hope of what will happen when they die. I pray that if they haven't done that yet, that they would do that right now, that they wouldn't waste one more second of their lives not living as a redeemed child of God. Lord, and then I pray that you would give them the courage to tell somebody they did that, that they now have the hope of the resurrection. Lord, we thank you for the hope that the death and resurrection of Jesus gives to us, the event in our lives. I pray that it would change the way that we view this life, that it would change the way that we go on from this point forward when we walk out these doors. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.